0: Hello, and welcome to the 15th podcast from the TTM Academy, an initiative at Penn Medicine to improve education and clinical care for patients with critical illness, and in particular, following cardiac arrest. My name is Dr. Benjamin Abella. I'm the host of the TTM Academy podcast series. I also invite you to check out our other educational initiatives in the TTM Academy, including our online on-demand video course, our live workshops, our Twitter feed and our resources on our website at pentm.com. In this podcast, we will bring you the second part of two from the Resuscitation Science Symposium, a national meeting focused on cardiac rest care. And in particular, we will continue the discussion with doctors Robert Newmar and Zindy Shu who presented a year-in-review of all the cutting-edge science that came out in the last 12 months pertaining to targeted temperature management and post-dress care. My colleague, Dr. Felipe Taran will introduce the topics, and this will be a continuation from Podcast 14. So I encourage you to listen to that one and then uh, this, the second part. So, moving on, the next study is another big one that got a
1: lot of attention in the resuscitation science community, titled Effect of Transnasal Evaporative Intra Cooling on Functional Neurological Outcome in Out of Hospital Cardiac Arrest, the Princess Randomized Clinical Trial. Dr. Per Notberg uh, actually presented this trial's results at breast this year. This was a prospective, multi-center, open-label, randomized controlled trial, an impressive study out of this European group, out of hospital cardiac arrest patients. They enrolled over 670 adult patients that had bystander witness out of hospital cardiac arrest. The intervention in this case was a novel device designed to provide intra-arrest transnasal cooling, and they compared that to standard care. So Bob, tell us about the study.
2: Yeah, so this is a very uh, interesting study. It's a follow-up on the, the original study the group did, and this was designed to be a more definitive trial looking at survival with good neurologic outcome. And the, the concept here is that intra-arrest cooling has the advantage of not only being earlier, but potentially uh, getting into a, a mechanistic therapeutic window that, are, that where hypothermia is beneficial in the early minutes of reperfusion. So if you can get the brain cooled uh, at or before the time the heart restarts there's a there's mechanisms by which it may be protective that are different and additive to the mechanisms by which hypothermia is protective when we initiate it two to four hours after cardiac arrest and maintain it for 24 hours and there's good animal research uh, showing that having the brain cooled at, in the early minutes of reperfusion has a significant uh, neuroprotective effect so that's what they're trying to achieve with this evaporative intra-arrest uh, cooling strategy. So they included patients with uh, all patients with shockable and non-shockable rhythm, and they had planned to analyze uh, the outcomes separately. And overall, the study, although the study had uh, sort of a numerical trend towards better outcomes with the intra-arrest cooling, it did not reach uh, statistical significance, significance for all patients. If you looked at the subset with shockable rhythms, uh, there was a little bit closer to uh, potential statistical significance. So the absolute difference you know, was a 25% versus about 35%, but that was not statistically significant. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, the magnitude of that treatment effect is important if it is real. Uh, and then in the non-shockable rhythms, there really was no signal of a, of a benefit. So it does seem to be that the effectiveness of this seemed to be in the, in the shockable group. And then they did a subgroup analysis of that, looking specifically at different CPC scores. And again, this is a post-hoc, post-hoc kind of analysis, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But when they did look at the number of patients that had a CPC1, which is the, a good outcome, you're almost back to normal, among patients with shockable rhythm, 32.6% in the intra-rest cooling group and only 20% in the control group, which was statistically significant. But again, this is a, you know, a post-hoc analysis and needs to be looked at. Now, perspectively. But again, there, there's, there is signal in here in the shockable rhythm group that this inter rest cooling strategy may be beneficial. Uh, the group has subsequently, and they presented at RESS, two additional analyses. One, they looked at patients that got cooled, uh, got the cooling initiated within 20 minutes of cardiac arrest onset, and they presented some data at rest suggesting that that resulted in a statistically significant improvement overall in the shockable rhythm group. And then they're doing a meta-analysis of their two studies, the Prince and Princess study, uh, that they're looking at uh, to see if that, again, gives you the statistical significance. So much more to come. Intranasal cooling probably is not going away, and there'll probably be more work uh, to try to bring that forward as as a potentially feasible strategy, especially in patients with shockable rhythm.
1: Super interesting. So intra nasal cooling at this point, could say, does not improve overall survival uh, with good neurological function, but may benefit some subpopulations, specifically in patients with initiable shockable rhythm. So the next study is another one that got a lot of attention, um, as they all did, and this is the HYPERON trial. This was a long-awaited trial assessing targeted uh, temperature management, uh, TTM, for cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythm. And Dr. Baptiste Lascarou from France actually Skyped in doing uh, arrests this year to give a presentation on this landmark study. Cindy, why don't you tell us what this study did and briefly what the implications are, at least for our practice?
3: Yeah, great. So this is really the first study that looked at specifically the effects of uh, targeted temperature management on non-shockable rhythms and they also included not only out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient but in-hospital cardiac arrest patients as well. So they it totaled to be 584 adult comatose patients after both types of arrests and with about a quarter being in-hospital arrest and uh, the rest being out-of-hospital arrest with a non-shockable initial rhythm. And the interventions were uh, either randomized to 33 versus 37 during the first 24 hours. Uh, and their primary outcome was survival with the neurologic outcome, which they defined as CPC of one and two at 90 days. As with all temperature management studies in cardiac arrest, we want to look at their temperature separation and the time to target temperature, enrollment, target temperature. So, the study enrolled for up to five hours post-RSC, and interestingly, even though there's wide variations, uh, there's definitely separations between the two groups in temperature if you look at the temperature curve. However, the median time from randomization to target temperature of 33 was uh, really uh, quite prolonged, so 317 minutes. With the primary outcome survival with good neurologic function of CPC 1 and 2, there was a significant difference of 4.5% with 33 degrees group uh, having better outcome. And so when they then looked at the subgroup analysis, they actually found that, in fact, the in-hospital uh, cardiac arrest patients seemed to have even more protective effect compared to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And also that the time to RSC, uh, the group that had less than 15 minutes also had a, a better, more protective effect with, with TTM. And so with that said, you know, I think that this is a important study that which you guys have talked about in your prior podcast, that it was the first one to look at non trackable cardiac arrest patients and the temperature management, the effect of that in their neurologic outcome. Bob and I were actually talking about how they cool these patients and what the control group actually got. You know, I think the question is, if you look at the temperature curve, again, the, there's perhaps wider variabilities from this study than, say, the TTM trial. Um, and that the control group, you know, definitely there were patients who were, then became fibrile, but in fact, maybe some of them actually got warmed from a colder temperature. Maybe they had a starting temperature, of like say 34, 35, and they had a device put on and then they got warmed to 37, you know, and how do we actually implement that strategy to, you know, we're going to say our primary goal is to protect, uh, to prevent fevers. How do we actually do that, uh, you know, practically? Which is nobody something that
1: nobody's looked at. So I think we could say, uh, basically, from this study, that cooling at 33 improves survival with good neurological function compared to uh, TTM at 37 in postcardiac arrest patients specifically with non-shockable rhythm?
0: I would add in
2: a few things. Again, we need to pay attention to this time to treatment because if you start to add those numbers together, they could be up to five hours to be enrolled and then there's another five hours to reaching target temperature. A lot of these patients had you know, probably a significant delay in therapy where they're getting to the point where the impact of the therapy is declining. So one thing to keep in mind is these studies may be underestimating the effect if the you know, therapeutic window is somewhere what we think around four hours. So getting people cooled sooner might make a bigger difference in these outcome measures. And I think that's important to, to consider when we interpret these studies.
1: Excellent. So the next study is actually a pack of three studies that you chose here that are uh, focusing on uh, neuroprognostication. The ProNECA study, the neurophysiology and neuroimaging um, accurately predict poor neurological outcome within 24 hours after cardiac arrest. The ProNECA perspective, multicenter prognostication study. Uh, Dr. Meenia Scarpino was the lead author uh, representing the ProNECA study group. Bob, why don't you walk us through this one?
2: Yeah, so the importance of this is this whole uh, concept of reliable neuroprognostication, and we struggle with this in post-cardiac arrest care because we want to make sure we don't withdraw care prematurely, and there's a, you know, many people believe that that's happening in many ICUs, especially in the United States. Uh, on the flip side, we want to have reliable and efficient strategies when, we, when it is clear that the patient does not have a chance of a good outcome, that we don't want to unnecessarily prolong care. And our traditions have been to try to wait longer and longer, especially when we add on therapies, to the point where it is becoming a burden on our ICUs to sort of maintain care on patients where uh, there's a low chance of them waking up. But there's always those patients that will wake up with some of the some of our prognostication tools. So we, we struggle with this and we really don't have a definitive, well-accepted strategy, although there the, the strategies that have been proposed and most, most accepted. Uh, say that we wait seventy-two hours, either from cardiac arrest or from rewarming, to prognosticate futility. Uh, and what many investigators are working on, including s- this group from uh, Italy, is say, you know, is there a subset of patients that we can reliably prognosticate poor outcome earlier? And the, the, the important part of this study not only is it that it's multi-center and multimodal prognostication, but it, it's in a group of hospitals that do not withdraw life-sustaining therapy. Uh, as a protocol, unless patients meet brain death criteria. So in this study, there's no self-fulfilling prophecy that they get a poor prognostic indicator, then they go ahead and withdraw care, and then that sort of feeds back positively on on the likelihood of their results. So so this is really a valuable patient population to do this kind of work in. And what they did is they took three accepted strategies, somatosensory evoked potentials, brain CT, gray-white ratio, and then uh, uh, pathologic EEG, uh, criteria and apply them in the first 24 hours to see how reliable that could be in a multimodal approach in predicting poor outcome. The other caveat is they use poor outcome of CPC four and five, six months. So this is people that are either going to die or be totally dependent for their care uh, and not trying to say that we're also including people with a CPC three. So the, the, the three criteria they use is they use SSEPs, which is traditionally It's absence of the N20 peak bilaterally, but they had a different criteria where you could have either absent or abnormal N20 peak. And the traditional way of doing this is a bilaterally absent response is what's been used and it has a high reliability, especially at 72 hours. They used um, a criteria where it it was absent on one side and abnormal on the other side, it was still uh, considered a a predictor of poor outcome. Uh, And they did it in the first 24 hours. Uh, The other criteria they used was the gray-white ratio. So that's typically looking at uh, a measure of brain edema. And if you look at the ratio of uh, intensity of the gray-to-white matter, and if it's less than 1.21, that suggested that there was enough brain edema that the patient wasn't going to wake up and have a good outcome. And then they had a number of criteria for highly malignant uh, EEG uh, as well. And so when they applied those three criteria, if any of the patients met one of those in the first 24 hours, Uh, They could predict poor outcome with a false positive ratio of zero and a 95% confidence interval of zero to 3%, which is is about as reliable as you can get. But the amazing thing about this, what it had is a 74% sensitivity, meaning that 74% of the patients that had a poor outcome could be predicted using this tool in the first 24 hours. Now obviously, this needs to be you know prospectively validated, validated. in other patient populations, but it, again it's an encouraging piece of evidence that there we it's worthwhile pursuing strategies where we can do uh, early neuroprognostication in a subset of patients.
1: Another great study so moving on, the last few studies you included are some uh, really interesting studies uh, I have to recognize that I actually wasn't aware of at least two of these um, and uh, Cindy, why don't you walk us through the, the next one? So this one was published actually in JAMA Neurology, which I personally don't follow, don't read. Um, and it was a study titled uh, Serum, a Neurofilament Light Chain for Prognosis of Outcome After Cardiac Arrest. Both of you are translational researchers. Dr. Bub Numer has an extensive experience. as um, a basic science researcher. So I know that this one's, this one was a study that, um, that you guys uh, liked a lot. And um, what do you tell us? exactly what they did. This was led by Dr. Marion Mosby-Knapp uh, and his team, and it was published in JAMA uh, Neurology in 2000, late 2018.
3: Great. So until this study, really, the biomarkers that we've relied on for pronostication for post-arrest patients are NSC and, uh, in some, for some places, S100B. Uh, and so this is really a biobank study, uh, study that came out from a TTM trial and so they took essentially all the available blood samples from TTM trial which actually was a, a large proportion only about eight percent were did not have the samples available and they essentially looked at the serum and the uh, neurofilament light chain analyzed the levels uh, at one day two days and three days after arrest with the outcome of uh, being poor neurologic outcome at six months with CPC scores of three to five. So uh, the neurofilament light chain has really gained a lot of attention during the past few years uh, in the traumatic brain injury and other uh, neurologic injury model in that it seemed to correlate with disease uh, severity. It is released by injured neurons, and it actually peaked really within the first 24 hours. And actually in the TBI literature, we know that it actually could stay elevated for quite some time. And so what the investigators actually found was that when they looked at the different thresholds of NFL, serum nfl level, they actually found that a level of greater than 600, 641 uh, picogram per milliliter being uh, very predictive of poor outcome. And this is it actually not only true within the first 24 hours, but actually stay true uh, up to 72 hours. But I think the important thing, as Bob mentioned, is can we actually try to prognosticate early? And in fact, they found out there was a uh, false positive ratio of uh, less than uh, 1% with a sensitivity of 31%. The other thing to note is that this is true for both temperature groups, so both uh, TTM of 33 and 36. And so this actually outcompetes NSE. suggest that is actually perhaps this might be an even better marker especially for early prognostication.
2: I think the key finding here is that it, it its performance is optimal at 24 hours mm-hmm. uh, rather than having to wait 48 or 72 or look at the delta over time. The challenge is that it's we're talking about measuring picograms per mil so this is a most hospitals don't have this as a standard assay and it's going to be harder to implement widespread because it's a harder measurement to make, but certainly potentially have a big impact on the use of biomarkers in brain injury, not only for cardiac arrest, but across the board.
1: Excellent. So getting to the end, it, the next study is another uh, important study on neuroprognostication. This was a study by Dr. Mauro Otto. That looked at the use of quantitative neurologic pupillary index or NPI for post arrest pronostication. Bob, why don't you <laughs> walk us through this one? Why did you choose it, and what did this group actually find?
2: Sure. And just the background of this is we've been using you know pupillary response as a as a you know neurologic uh, measure for you know probably hundreds of years, and we still do it the same way we did it ever since it was first decided that it was important. And, but there's been emerging data over the past few decades that it can be done in a quantitative way, be much more reliable, and it's it actually is similar to when we think about an evoked potential because you have a stimulus to the brainstem and then you have a measurable response of the pupillary response. So uh, it's a it's a very you know, low cost, low you know uh, way, low fidelity way of trying to get uh, an evoked potential. And and when you use this these pupillary um, quantitative pupillary free strategies, basically, there's a number of different devices on the market, but what they do is they have a standardized light stimulus, so the stimulus is standardized, and then they measure not just whether yes or no, whether the pupil responds, but they measure that pupillary response as a waveform. So not only do you know how much it responds, but there's a latency and recovery, and all that information actually can be integrated uh, to really look at uh, what. But this particular study looked at as what's called a neuropupillary, neurological pupil index, where they integrate all that information uh, in a way of comparing it to a normal response. So what they did in this study, there was a multi-center observational study in 10 ICUs of comatose cardiac arrest survivors. And they actually did serial quantitative pupillometry uh, with this specific device in a proprietary analytic uh, strategy versus manual pupillometry uh, on uh, day one, two, and three after cardiac arrest and then looked at how well uh, that response uh, predicted uh, poor outcome defined as a CPC of three to five at three months. Uh, And basically uh, what they showed is the standard way of doing it uh, was not very reliable, but the nor pupillary index uh, was extremely reliable in predicting poor outcome. Again, this theme of uh, the reliability was just as good in the first 24 hours as it was in subsequent days which again is different from what we know about uh, manual pup- manual pupillary reflexes, which we don't think are reliable at least until 72 hours in predicting outcome. So if you have a neuro pupillary index of two, uh, in the first 24 hours, the false positive rate for predicting poor outcome was zero with a confidence interval of zero to 2%. Uh, it was sensitive to in, in 22% sensitivity, which means a quarter of the patients uh, could have had a prediction of poor outcome in the first 24 hours. And again, it was valid in both, it was done in a a population that had both normothermia, or TTM at 36 and 33, so suggesting temperature uh, wasn't a confounder. So again, this study, the the neurofilament light chain, and then the work uh, by uh, Scarpino's group with standard neuroprognostication strategies suggests that we should be able to come up with a multimodal strategy that would be able to predict poor outcome in a significant population of patients post arrest within the first 24 hours but more research in terms of prospective validation studies are going to be required.
1: The very last study that you included is a really, I think it would be fair to say crazy one that got published in uh, nature science. And uh, this is a study that looked at pig brains that were dead and looked at the, their ability to actually restore circulation in brain and um, in, in the brain of swine um, as well as the cellular function, several hours after post-mortem. So ex vivo study, pretty pretty mind-boggling. Um, I'm going to leave uh, Bob to uh, give us whatever he thinks is important for the general audience in resuscitation care to know about this study. We know that Dr. Lance Becker um, was all over this study, uh, as, as well as uh, a lot of other um resuscitation scientists in in the field uh who are excited about uh kind of what the future looks like um is this really the future bob can we are we really talking here about bringing back the dead like
2: peter so study, said once yeah. so this study certainly got a lot of press um and i think that uh the uh, the idea of sort of you know r- brings me back to sort of the, the frankenstein concept where we can find uh you know post-mortem uh Body parts and, and bring them back to life, uh, and, and obviously, you know, we think about this obviously with you know organ procurement for transplant, but we really don't think about sort of you know the brain in, in that way. And this really, I'm not sure what how how what the ultimate implications of this are going to be, but it does challenge many of our assumptions about you know irreversible injury to the brain, uh, that you know there's a certain period of no flow or a certain period of ischemia. Where the brain cannot recover from, and this really challenges that concept because although they did a lot, it took a lot of you know uh, work to get these brains to actually start having metabolism again and electrical function again. Uh, they did you know in fact take brains that were probably were on average four hours after death and uh, reperfuse you know preserve them in a way. They did some cooling, they did some flushing of the brain early, and then put them on this proprietary. Uh, system to restore flow that had a bunch of neuroprotective uh, agents in it and balanced solutions to minimize any kind of reperfusion injury, and we're show we're able to show that they could get a significant number of cellular functions to restore, uh, including uh, you know synaptic activity that they could measure and 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 you know oxygen utilization, glucose metabolism. Uh, they never did restore any organized electrical activity like you could measure on EEG so I think the this not did not restore consciousness which is sort of the big sort of conceptual and ethical issue you know if you take a a brain that is dead for hours and then bring it back to life outside the body is is there awareness and consciousness and I don't think that's what's happening uh, in this but uh, I think it does challenge our concepts of especially in cardiac arrest this idea that the duration of the cardiac arrest is ultimately the limiting factor in whether the brain can recover and I will you know there's concepts that are, you know being challenged in stroke where we're taking strokes that have you know a, a severe occlusion taking them into the intravascular lab many many hours after that and reperfusing them and getting re- recovery of brain function so I think we need to continually challenge this concept of you know a duration a 30 minute cardiac arrest the brain can't recover from because This data suggests that it is possible for the brain uh, to recover from these prolonged periods of ischemia. We just need to understand how we uh, initiate and maintain a reperfusion of that brain in order to uh, make that happen.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Bob and and Cindy, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys, and we'll see you soon.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And with that, I thank you everyone for your attention. Please check us out at uh, www.penttm.com where you can find uh, all the episodes of this podcast and much more, including some online training courses, live courses, and workshops. You can also follow uh, the account of the TTM Academy on Twitter at PennTTM where you can send us your questions and ideas for future topics that you would like us to discuss that's all for today. Don't forget to check the website and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.